It is the 200 level episode 93. Mike Carpenter here from the basement. It is Friday, getting this out to you for the weekend, which I hope you get outside and enjoy what looks to be a beautiful summer weekend. But even then, I find myself doing yard work or things like that, listening to podcasts, and hopefully this might be something that can pass the time for you a little bit as well. Great interview coming up with John Paul. John was an anchor, longtime anchor and reporter at Channel 3 here in Champaign-Urbana, and also 20-plus years as a professor at the University of Illinois College of Media. So we have a wide-ranging discussion about journalism. How is it doing? What are the pros and cons of journalism in 2020? What concerns does he have? What is he encouraged by? Very wide-ranging discussion, which I think you'll enjoy. But the big news today, of course, is Lovey Smith Speaks. And this is something that I think we anticipated. No one thought that he was staying silent because he didn't have something to say. And he actually gave quite a lengthy interview, at least for Lovey. You know, he's a quiet guy. Eight and a half minute interview with Mike Tirico. And we're going to play that in full here coming up in just a bit. But a reminder that the 200 level is brought to you by DP Doe. Online at dpdoe.com. Order online for all the best deals and prices. They'll deliver anywhere in Champaign-Urbana. So stay home, stay safe. They bring you the delicious hot calzone with any topping you want if it's a custom zone or maybe some of their favorites like the maui wowie and the buffer zone online at dpdo.com also state farm agent brian hansen online at brianismyguy.com yes trevor's favorite domain name and not just because it's a clever domain name but that you can get lots of information whether it be life auto home business renters insurance they have you covered and all of their agents they're local champagne urbana born and raised they have your local interest at heart. Brian is my guy. Dot com. Also, 4th and Kirby online at 4th and The warm weather is here, which means you need t shirts to stay cool and to look cool. And 4th and Kirby has you covered. No offense to Nike. I love Nike stuff, but they've really not done a good job with the Illini apparel. 4th and Kirby have vintage inspired Illini t shirts and even sweatshirts if you are one of those people that runs a little bit cold, even when it's 80 degrees out. 4th and All right, so it was Friday morning about 11.25 Central Time, and Lovey appeared on Mike Tirico's show on NBC Sports Network for an interview, which, of course, they talk about what's going on right now. And we figured, I think, that Lovey, who did speak out after the Colin Kaepernick anthem controversy, which nowadays doesn't seem like that big of a controversy, Drew Brees' comments aside. And it was a very honest interview with Lovey, and I appreciate his candor. I want to separate one thing real quick here at the top, because certainly I've been critical of Lovey Smith, the coach. And yes, I've even been critical of the way that he might handle the media or how as a college football coach, I don't think he necessarily does enough to get out there and do all the handshaking, which listen, that wouldn't be my favorite part of the job either. And I guess if you win enough games, you don't need to. But all those criticisms aside, those are more professional. And I hope I have not ever come off too personal when it comes to Lovey Smith. I'm sure I probably have. And for that, I kind of regret that. But in terms of him as a person and one of integrity and credibility, especially on these issues as being a black coach who was often someone to break barriers. I mean, think about that. Tony Dungy, Lovey Smith, the first black coaches to ever appear in a Super Bowl back in 2007. He made history. First black coach in Illinois football history. Again, aside from the questions I have on the field and recruiting, All of that is rather secondary when you're dealing with this larger social racial issue, and he speaks very well on it. So what I wanted to do is play the interview in its entirety. If you've already heard it, it's about eight and a half minutes. So you just skip forward eight and a half minutes in your podcast player, whatever you need to do. But if you have not, here is Lovey Smith on Mike Tirico's show on NBC Sports Network. 
group. Lovey, how is um, all of your time coaching in the NFL? We speak with Tony Dungy almost every week. Uh, Tony was on the show again yesterday. Your time around Tony, your time as an NFL head coach. Uh, how has it all prepared you to handle the job that you have right now? Because the job is a lot more than X's and O's over the last 12 weeks. Well, life experiences, you know, a lot of life experiences, you know, Mike, have, I feel like has uh, prepared me for this moment. Uh, when I say life experiences, you know, I'm a 62-year-old black man from the South uh, uh, in a biracial uh, marriage. So Marianne and I have seen an awful lot. I get a chance to lead men from all different places, all different nationalities. And, and as you mentioned, life skills do come up. You know, as football players, as coaches, we live in a cocoon a lot of times where the real world didn't actually touch us. But uh, mm-hmm. we teach, we develop, we talk about developing the man first, and then we develop the football player. As we look, Mike, at what's going on right now, you know, in our society, uh, I've always encouraged our players to be involved with what's happening in, in your normal world, your normal life. As we look right now at what's what's going on, um, you know, I've been asked a lot of times, hey, Lovey, can you come give me a statement about what's going on right now? Uh, you know, can you do that? Um, it's, it's so much more than that. Mike, a few things I think we need to acknowledge uh, and we can't go much farther until we do this. Systemic racism exists in our world. We have to acknowledge that first before we can go any farther. I've seen it. There's one thing to identify a problem. Then is how we change that problem. That's what we've been doing at the University of Illinois. We're trying to make the world better, but it can't be words. You know, I talked to our players about hey, you have a right to protest. That's great. That's what college life is all about, too, uh, in a peaceful mm-hmm. manner. But then what else do you do? You know, Mike, and that's where we are right now. What else do we do to make football better and to make the world better? And those are conversations that are happening in every city, in a lot of households, a lot of businesses. <laughs> the acknowledgement of an issue is the beginning, and then how – do you take the steps to try and deal with it? And in college yeah. football, Lovey, a, a lot of times we'll we'll judge people on your record. And hey, it was a, a six and seven win season. Got to a bowl game last year. Illinois football is in a better place than it was. I've never seen the coach who gets retained for we're turning out better men. We have a better society of football players from school X because this coach has been here for the last three or four years. Do you think that there is more room now to have that as a legitimate part of the conversation and judge people on those who are coming out of your program and not just did you win at Ohio State and what was the point spread against Wisconsin? Do you think we can get closer to that in college athletics? Yeah, I think we can in every walk of life a little bit. But uh, eventually sports do come down to what's your record. I mean, that's all people really want to know. Uh, the, the approach I've taken, first off, I've been blessed with an opportunity, you know, to lead NFL teams, of course, to lead college programs. Uh, that's what we're talking about is that opportunity. Once you get there, though, in order for me to help the next person that looks like me, the next black person, get that opportunity, the wins and the losses do come up. But it is more than that. 
And when I say that it's more than that, that's what we're dealing with on a daily basis. Uh, we, at the, I'm just talking about the University of Illinois and what we're doing, what we're looking right. at. Uh, yeah. As these discussions happen uh, right now, we have to really look at ourselves a little bit. You know, for, you know, civil rights movement was about, um, you know, uh, eliminating segregation and making this society a more integrated place. As I talk about our program down there, I mean, my platform as I see it, and I'm in a position where I can change a little bit, I look at what we have at the University of Illinois. We're led by a black chancellor, black head football coach. Seven of the ten assistant coaches are black men. Our director of personnel, our director of man development, our director of high school relations is a black female, our director of academics. So to me, it's about the platform of putting a model together to see exactly, uh, you know, what can happen when you look beyond your normal comfort zone of people and what can get done and seeing people of a different color. But the record eventually comes back to it. I realize that. That's why when we get in positions, we need to do well. We need to do better. The University of Illinois is headed in the right direction. We made progress. We made noise last year. This year is our time to really knock down the door. And we saw a little bit of that with the win over Wisconsin, then ranked sixth in the country when you guys knocked them off. When you have the conversations with your team, yes, how much of an open mind are you seeing and hearing from the players who maybe did not know the difficulties that some of their teammates, some of the guys who wear the orange and blue helmet next to them had gone through before they've arrived at the same spot in that same locker room, eventually zoom call for right now uh, that everybody else has arrived at. Well, Mike, you know, with, with our football team, I mean, they've seen what we've been doing all along. It's not like we're going to have to change an awful lot. But I think it has opened a lot of, our, of, uh, of us, our eyes to what's happening, not necessarily just at the University of Illinois, but with everyone else. And what I've always talked about last election, guys, be informed. This is a true way to make, to for people to hear your voice. Right now, I see a lot of protests. Protests are good. Then what do we do? It's like uh, there's a death, there's a funeral. And everybody leaves. And after the funeral, the next day, everybody goes home. What we're doing, what I'm going to insist on, first off, our, all of our guys register to vote. But th that's just a part of it, registering to vote. Be informed. If you don't like what's going on right now, and we in America have acknowledged that we don't like what's going on right now, we have to look at first our leader. Do you like the policies that he has in place? Congress, uh, local governments. This is how you have true change. And for us, uh, I'm going to get back to make sure that people, they're informed. And I think a little bit on what's going on right now, a lot of people are saying that, well, I didn't know. I think we all know right from wrong. Uh, we have, you know, I listened to a little bit of Joe Namath before. We've all been taught that. And I think most of us really do know right from wrong. And, uh, again, that's what we've been preaching. We're going to continue to do that uh, with our program. There's diversity. And the only way to make real change is we come together. Diversity does that. And you look at all the different areas. You know, Mike, the NFL right now is, is, is you know, everybody's talking NFL. The, there's only three black coaches. There are yeah. only two GMs. Uh, there's no black owner. That's important. But you look at college football also. When you talk about systemic racism a little bit, 
there are programs, college programs, where you can have a one-time transfer rule in place where guys can transfer and, and be eligible. There are other sports like football and basketball where you can't. I think mm-hmm. if you keep looking in detail a little bit, why are there different rules for different people? And I think that's what we get to right now a little bit. You know, we had you haven't you know mentioned George Floyd, uh, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor. Uh, you know, that's kind of seen right there. Everybody acknowledges that that is bad, but it goes so much right. deeper than that. And that's what we're trying to change. Sports definitely can. I mean, force forces us to get to know each other, and you can see that there can be some great positive things happen. That was Lovey Smith, again, with Mike Tirico, audio courtesy of NBC Sports Network. And a lot covered there. And I got to give Lovey credit. I think there were maybe three questions in the entire thing, and he was ready to go. And we've been waiting this week to hear from him, and not just for, oh, hey, Lovey, you're, you're a black coach. Surely you have things to say, but also, as I mentioned before, that there's context in him talking about these sorts of things. He begins mentioning his life experience, 62-year-old black guy from the South, biracial marriage. I mean, these are things that when he and Marianne got married, you know, we talk about progress and certainly there has been some progress. There's no doubt about that. But when they would have gotten married, I'm sure that was much more of a taboo thing than it is now. And let's be real, even now, it will make some people turn their heads and, you know, kind of squint their eyes like that can't be right. Right. He says he's encouraged players to be involved. And this is where he comes right off the bat within the first minute of the interview. And he says systemic racism exists. And. I don't think that can be said too many times because as I had spoken with Antonio Adams earlier this week, the federal sergeant, old friend of mine from Urbana High School, the difference between the bad apple argument and systemic racism argument, that bad apples, you know, if you had eight apples in your fridge and one of them were rotten, you wouldn't just let it sit in there, right? And this goes to the systemic thing that needs to be changed, the fact that we were allowing these bad apples to sit and poison everything else. So yeah, there's systemic racism and it goes beyond law enforcement. It goes far beyond that. Lovey goes on, he says, it can't be words or more to his point, it can't only be words so that he does encourage his guys to take action. As he says, what else do you do other than protest? Action is required afterwards. And that's true. You can go to a march, you can feel good about it. I mean, I did that Monday in Urbana and it felt terrific. But the next step was coming home and figuring out, okay, what's the next action item? And Karen and I have talked about that, and we are going to do our best to be active and not just post the occasional meme on Facebook or Instagram. You know, I mean, not that those are not helpful. It's good to use your voice even in that platform, but actually getting down to it. He does get asked the second question about, hey, wouldn't it be nice, Mike Tirico, thinking a utopian society here kind of, wouldn't it be nice if we kept coaches based on how they grew the man and less about the record? And Lovey just says, hey, listen, you know, sports comes down to your record. He says that every other profession, though, I mean, including sports, could have some element of that become a bigger deal that we do encourage people in any walk of life to help grow the person. I've heard that term many times before for 18 to 22 year olds at that impressionable age. You know, these coaches do matter. And I I am proud as a University of Illinois alum that this is Lovey, able to speak on this, able to recognize what needs to be talked about and what needs to be changed. That represents the university very well. And I have no doubt that when it comes to these issues, there are a few coaches I'd rather have at Illinois than him to help guide his young 18 to 22-year-olds through this. 
he mentions the civil rights movement, you know, the segregation and integrate that that was sort of the two pronged approach of that civil rights movement. And clearly this is getting down to societal law enforcement issues that they were dealing with back then when Levy would have been younger, but it still exists. We talk about Martin Luther King and you see a lot of very convenient uses of Martin Luther King quotes. I have a dream. Well, that's great. And it's one of the best speeches ever. There's no doubt. But unfortunately, I feel like that often gets used as a sort of shield to really talk about what's going on. This is from Lovey. He says, my platform is what can happen when you look beyond your comfort zone. He talks about the University of Illinois, black chancellor, seven of the 10 staff members on this football team, black, including a black female. He mentioned back uh, in 2016, and I remember him speaking to this, that during elections, be informed, make your voice heard. He said that everyone on the team has been registered to vote. I'm not sure if that's a concentrated effort from within, but regardless, that's impressive. That's very impressive to get a bunch of college kids, that many of them, all registered. He says, if you don't like what's going on, and we in America have acknowledged it's not working, you got to look at the leader, Congress, local governments for true change. Again, he's just saying it like it is. And we could say that, let's say you were a pro-Trump or uh, consider yourself a conservative individual and you think that some things are working. But at the end of the day, this is a pretty chaotic time. And historically, we will look back on this as, well, the worst year in modern American history with the convergence of all these different elements. And it does start at the top, but it also trickles all the way down to local government, policy change, things that matter. Because as I said in the last podcast, Trump probably makes these things worse. I don't know if that's even arguable, but he is not the only issue going on here. These issues have existed long before he took office. Lovey also mentions the lack of black coaches in the NFL, the NCAA. He mentions the different rules and transfers depending on sport and hints that, you know, hey, listen, that's potentially another form of systemic racism. Lovey's got his eyes open. And if we have people that still, I saw a Facebook post about this from someone I went to high school with saying, listen, there's no systemic racism. There's not policies in place that make it more difficult to be a black individual in America. And on its face, I disagree with it. It was well-written. It was thoughtful, but I, again, disagree with that notion because even if, yes, black people can vote now, black people can be in law enforcement now, as we talked about with Antonio, didn't always used to be the case. There has been progress, but just because some of these things are not blatantly in your face does not mean that they don't exist. Structural, societal, these things are obstacles for young black people. And let's be real. If I were a black kid growing up, I think about Antonio. I was thinking about this. He didn't say this, but the entire time he was talking about growing up as a really good athlete and really good student, I thought, man, Antonio did everything right. And to get where he is now, he almost had to because of one slip. That could have been going to jail. And then all of a sudden, good luck getting a job when that's on your rap sheet and all of that. Meanwhile, here I am in high school. You know, white kid in Urbana, Illinois, no big deal. And at the party, I'm not worrying about, well, if I get caught, I get caught. Big deal. I go through the adult diversion program, they write it off, I'm all good. I'm not concerned about these things because I know that ultimately, yeah, things will probably work out for me. That was this layer of invincibility that as a white kid and a white male, I didn't necessarily think about all that deeply, but there was this sense of security that I know black individuals do not have, even now, 
Now, that was in the early 2000s. We're talking 2020 now, and I see it in the kids I have in my own classroom, some of whom have a distrust of authority, and why not? When they get stories from older siblings or parents or aunts and uncles or grandparents about their own issues that they've had in their life with authority and with the police. So I'm glad that we spoke on it. As a U of I alum, again, I'm proud that he is the one at the pulpit being able to talk about this from a place of experience. As he said, 62-year-old black guy growing up in the South, biracial marriage. Whoa. That's the one we should probably listen to. Unlike Dabo from Clemson, who had this rambling, incoherent response that reminded me of Billy Madison, where it says, we're all stupider for having listened to your answer. That's what he had, essentially, this rambling five-minute thing that didn't address any of it. And you're going to get that from some coaches at the same time, you know, with the Drew Brees situation, what he said about the Kaepernick thing, and he still doesn't get what the protests were about in the first place. That is dumb. Let's call it what it is. It's someone not actually listening to what's going on. But I think we also need to be careful to not get into a purity test that if you don't go all the way, you can't be on the team for change. Right. I, I don't know if going about punishing people that, Put their foot in their mouth, right? Which he did. If Drew Brees wants back on the team, let him on the team. Because we need as many people as we can if change is going to happen. All right. So ends a week. What a week. (laughs) It was just on Sunday that we had massive protests nationwide. We had a little bit of looting here in Champaign, unfortunately. Monday was a much better day locally. And one that I think has really reset the tone for Champaign-Urbana, this community, this week. It's been a good week. And I got to give credit to this community, a diverse community that might have its own issues, but I really feel like in its heart of hearts, it's trying to be the best place it can be for all of its citizens. That sounds very, very political and diplomatic and, you know, I get it, wishy-washy Pollyanna stuff. But I do believe that having grown up and lived in this community for 33 years, We have our best interest at heart for all of our residents. Now it's time to actually make sure we're doing those things that we need to. So I appreciate, by the way, any listener that's kind of going along on this ride with us. We will get sports back, as I've said before, but at the same time, this is what people are talking about now. If you aren't talking about it, you should probably start. Because if you feel uncomfortable or feel awkward broaching these issues, why? Why does it make you uncomfortable? Go for it. Listen, on this podcast, we're going to talk about anything and everything, especially sports. And hopefully, hopefully by the time we get back next week, we got baseball to look forward to. Don't count on it. We have more details about the NBA schedule, which starts, what, July 31st? That's great. We have students coming back to campus. Football, men's basketball. They will actually report, I guess, beginning on the 8th. They did not report this week. I'm not sure if that was for safety issues or what, but they will be back in a staggered fashion next week. So we're getting there. We got games to play, including Illinois football. You know, hey, all my cynicism aside, I'm ready for football, even if it is 20,000 people at the stadium, and even if all I do is go tailgate and then come back to my house to watch the game. To wrap up the week, though, I was excited to speak with John Paul. If you've lived in Champaign-Urbana, you know this guy. He was on Channel 3 for a long time. Really good broadcaster, reporter, anchor. He did some radio work before that at WPGU. So both he and I, WPGU alums from back in the college days. He went on to become a professor at the University of Illinois. 
and just a cool guy, as you're going to gather in this, a very easy conversation to have about the media and journalism, the state of it right now. You are not going to find many more even-keeled, objective people than John, and it was a pleasure to have him on the podcast, and I hope to have him on again down the road because these sorts of conversations, as we see today, The Athletic lays off 46 employees. We look at the state of local newspapers, and I am worried about the News Gazette, for example, and their longevity, even though I need to give credit where it's due. Bob Osmussen and that sports staff have done a great job this week. Bob spoke with Kerry Davis, and we're going to have Kerry Davis on next week to talk about a lot of these things. It was a great article, and Bob is killing it right now. He's reaching out to former players, Simeon Rice earlier this week, Kerry Davis, and doing a great job reporting and getting their perspective on these very important issues. So kudos to Bob and the rest of the staff over there at the News Gazette. All right, without further ado, let's get to it. It is John Paul, former WCIA3 anchor and reporter, University of Illinois College of Media professor on the 200 level. All right, so it's really cool to have John Paul on the 200 Level Podcast. And not only was he a longtime professor at the University of Illinois, including when I was there, even though I was the news editorial track and he was on the broadcast TV side, but many of you will remember him from 20 plus years at WCIA Channel 3. John, thanks for hopping on. And for this conversation, I mean, more than ever, and this might sound like a little bit of a cliche intro, but more than ever, we're absorbing media, especially the fact that most people are at home. And there's little else to do. And I find that often the term media becomes this sort of monolithic thing that people just say, oh, the media this or the media that. Uh, what is the danger in turning something as diverse and fragmented as the media business, the news media business, into just a oversimplified one word buzzword kind of thing, media? Yeah, I do think obviously the uh, the press, uh, whether it be newspapers and television and radio and, and the internet sources too, they're all under attack because we've all become so uh, polarized, I guess, in these days of Republicans, Democrats, I watch and listen to what I want, what I feel most comfortable with. And I think the danger is you paint, by, by using the media, you paint every reporter, every producer, every writer, every editor with the same broad paintbrush. That, and that's not really fair. I mean, a lot of polling shows that people do trust their local news outlets uh, very highly, and they distrust some of the national um, news outlets more, but they use the term media to apply to everybody. And in reality, I think a lot of the reporters that are out there on the streets trying to cover city council meetings, protests lately, COVID cases, they're out there doing the best job they can do for, as you and I know, very little money in uh, in the broadcast and print world. Uh, and I, you know, so I think saying I hate the media, the media is always wrong, is just the wrong way. I could do the same thing and say every police officer is bad, and we know for certain that's not the case. There are a few bad apples, and yes, there are a few bad apples in the press but i think that's such a small minority that it's unfair to use the same paintbrush to paint us all that way yeah you mentioned how local news tends to be more trusted than the national news and i the first thing i went to back to this idea of polarization is 
how the national news often gets kind of painted as the the coastal elites and then the local news coverage is more kind of in your backyard, maybe more familiar to the people that are absorbing it. But it wasn't always like that, right? I mean, I'm trying to think even back to the 90s, and this is, I'm not even talking like Walter Cronkite or anything, but the 90s and like the Dan Rathers and the Tom Brokaws of the world, the Peter Jennings, that era. And it seems like there was a switch that was flipped at some point, um, maybe late 90s, early 2000s, where all of a sudden, even those guys probably couldn't escape with certain labels that were strictly partisan, whether they were fair or not. Yeah, I think that switch is directly tied to uh, the Internet and social media. As the Internet came around in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, we all could connect and share our opinions uh, more easily than we could before that. So that, and uh, plus there are far, far more sources for information than there have ever been. I mean, just look at, I know Mike, you're a sports fan. Just look at the number of places that I can get sports. It used to be, I had my local sports cast and the sports section for my local newspaper, wherever that was whether it's Chicago, Champaign, Peoria, whatever. Uh, now I can get sports all over the place, not only on the air. And if I'm only a basketball fan, I get the NBA channel or college basketball or hockey channel. And I think that's become true across the board for all of us. Things are so fractionalized that it used to be, for example, you could subscribe, subscribe to a magazine because I'm a golfer or I'm a quilter, or I'm a gardener. Well, now you can do that with your source of information. So I think that's kind of broken down into little pieces. And there isn't, there are more places divvying up that trust anymore that is out there for the press and the media. You know, there isn't, as I grew up during the 60s and 50s, uh, there isn't a Walter Cronkite that's out there the most trusted man in America uh, or in the 90s. And I think the big switch was when the internet came along and offered us far more sources for information. You mentioned uh, your youth, and I wanted to get into that, how you kind of got into journalism in the first place. And you had shared with me kind of the genesis of this whole thing for you was a teenage, your teenage years, you got a paper route for the Peoria Journal Star, correct? Right. And you would just sort of read it and that was the seed that eventually became into uh your your career move but what was it specifically about holding a newspaper reading it which a lot of a lot of the kids out there they don't know what it's like you know i think um i think for many of us it's easier to look backwards and have something make sense if you know what i mean after a big event happens Six months from now, we'll make more sense of this pandemic. We'll make more sense of the looting, rioting, protests as history goes along. And I think the same way for me. I didn't know I would ever have an interest in whatever journalism was when I walked house to house delivering newspapers. But I find myself reading the paper, at least the part that wasn't rolled tight with a rubber band around it, (laughs) um, you know, as I walked house to house. And I really do look at that and a high school speech class I took that got me interested in radio uh, as being kind of the little seeds that grew into a journalism career. I always liked to write. Uh, I liked to tell stories. You know, I I was the guy who could get up in front of class and be a ham or whatever that is, uh, or 
you know, do Orson Welles' uh, War of the Worlds and just have a blast with stuff like that. I think I probably should have gone into uh, whatever that was, like high school musicals or theater, mm -hmm. because I have that in me. But I was a little too bashful to do that at that time. So, yeah, a lot of it relates to that. And then when I got to the U of I as a, uh, you know, coming out of high school, I was certain I wanted to do radio, that I had a face for radio, <laughs> uh, and that I would we end up do. doing radio. And I did college radio, loved college radio. I wasn't a DJ. The line to be a DJ was far too long. The line to be a news person was really short, so I got in the short line. Uh, and that changed my whole life. You mentioned radio, and you are a WPGU alumnus, right? right? Just just like I was. And you mentioned how you get into the reporting side of it. And for me, I can pinpoint sports talk radio shows. When I first figured out they even existed, sixth, seventh grade, and I would listen to it in the morning getting ready. So for you, from the radio perspective, were there any specific influences, or was it just a natural pro progression of the things that you were already doing in terms of writing telling stories in class and that sort of thing. Certainly. Having, having grown up downstate in Peoria, I mean, we were influenced by a lot of Chicago radio and St. Louis radio for that matter too. But WBBM News Radio was what I listened to a lot. WLS Music Radio, of course, for the top 40 music uh, of the 60s and, and 70s when I got into high school, you know, before FM stations became popularized. Um uh, yeah, for the most part, I would say I was influenced most by WBBM AM, News Radio 78, and listening to their all-news format and going, hey, that's pretty cool. Plus, some of those people had really cool voices oh, yeah. that I had hoped someday I could grow into. <laughs> if I were to listen to the early stuff I did as an 1890s, well, actually, I started at PGU when I was 16 as a going into my junior year of high school, because during the summer, all the kids go back to Chicago and Travis Drury was doing the, the afternoon sports show. And he and my sister interned together. And she was like, I know somebody that likes sports. So that got me in the door a little bit early, but you, you mentioned WLS. And I remember distinctly my dad telling stories about Larry Lujak and uh, his program. And I know there's other names. I mean, Steve Dahl, I think was my, maybe around that. And those guys were maybe more of the, um, I don't know. Shock jock is a bit of a strong term, but you mentioned WBBM. And I remember as a kid, there was almost something soothing about it. You mentioned the voices in particular, and that has an impression, especially for us, we'd be on a road trip or something. And especially in the morning before we turn music loud or anything, I'd be in the backseat hearing the WBBM newscast. And it, it resonated, even if I didn't quite know, like you said, at the time. You know, and I think the same way from a sports standpoint, I grew up a Cardinals fan because my dad was. I think that influences all of us, whatever our father's fandom was. But when I think of of that, I look back to, I listened to Harry Carey and Jack Buck on KMOX uh, and, you know, maybe a local affiliate closer to where I grew up would carry the Cardinals broadcast too. And since I always wanted to be a second baseman for the Cardinals, I never made there. Um, <laughs> you know, that was that was my goal was, hey, maybe I could play baseball, you know, when you're in Little League and you always dream of a major league career. But then it was, hey, well, maybe if I couldn't play baseball, maybe I could do the broadcast. You know what I mean? Sure. Oh, that was exactly my path. I knew I was going to be anything but a professional anything in terms of athletics. But we would record, let's say, my sister's Park District basketball games and I'd be behind the camcorder, you know, trying my hand to play by play. And it was fun. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, so that's part of it. 
is coming to college, I expected I would try to get into sports play by play. And, you know, back then there was no big 10 network. There were no exclusivity contracts for Illinois basketball, Illinois baseball, Illinois uh, football. So any radio station in the state, which is hard to imagine now, Mm -hmm. but any radio station could do a football game. All you had to do was put in a phone line to the press box and there you were. Same way with IHSA basketball tournaments when they were then the assembly hall. Anybody could do that. So WPGU did Illini basketball games. I was never a sportscaster there, but I was the voice at the beginning that told you, and now live from the assembly hall, brought to you by Budweiser. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, right. That, that intro voice. But boy, I, there is so much about radio that I miss and love being the theater of the mind. You know, there's so many things you can do in a radio show. And I I remember that from some of our alum uh, from the University Journalism School that I still still deal with uh, in Chicagoland that are former radio people from the 60s who, you know, they were air personalities. Rokan, well, Rokan still is. He's not an alum, but, uh, you know, maintaining friendships with some of them and to just hear how they create shows i've never done a show on the radio uh you know how you come up with the content how you keep it fresh really innovative and and for you it sounds as if radio that was maybe the path that you were hoping to take and the reason i asked that is because you the day after you took your final exam at the u of i you accept a job as a reporter at wcia now was that simply a matter of i graduated they offered me a job okay let's do it Yeah, indeed, it was exactly that. You know, I went into the interview at uh, the TV station, having really only taken, I think, one, maybe two television courses at the university. And uh, I told the guy, I said, are you are you looking at me to do this TV job? Because I've never really done TV. And he goes, yeah, but you know, news, you know, journalism, based on your radio news experience, we'll teach you the TV part of it. And I'm like, yeah, I own one sports coat and, you know, <laughs> all of that kind of stuff. Do I have to get a haircut? Because my hair is now longer than it was in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, some of that stuff was, it was an opportunity. And I got paid under $10,000 in that first job in television uh, wow. for the whole year. So it, yeah, it was uh, an opportunity. I expected to graduate, go back to Peoria and work in radio in some little dinky town somewhere and you know tv bit me and i never left was there a hook in particular i mean for example was there a story that you did in those early years that when you saw it uh, maybe a tape of it or when you finally cut it all together that you said okay i i think i get this i think that this is meant for me I don't know. You know, there's so much more technology in television than radio. Radio, you need a mic and a way to get it up the tower and out the broadcast. That's about it. And in television, you need all these people with cameras and switching back in the control room and graphics. And, you know, you have to shoot film of the fire and somebody has to cut it and edit it and write it. And it's just a little bit more complex. And I actually liked that, the complexity that television brought. Uh, I think there's a kind of a misconception though that you know because you're in front of the camera as an anchor whether that be on sports center or on a local newscast that you're in charge of everything and you're not you just happen to be the person who's reading or telling the story usually with teleprompter right um 
but yeah, you're, you're not in charge, but I did get a thrill out of those first few times. And, you know, then all of a sudden your picture's on a bus board or a billboard, watch the local news at six o'clock or whatever it was. Uh, and my parents, of course, put up a big antenna in Peoria to watch me from 90 miles away so they could call me and tell me I needed an haircut. Sure, so, yeah, of course. Uh, when you switched to anchoring, was that were, were there any moments where you're like, ah, I kind of miss the ac- the action, for lack of a better term, of actually getting okay. out there? And, was there a bit of that? Yeah, I, I really frankly can tell you anchoring was the least uh, least liked part of what I did. Okay. I liked producing, being behind the scene. And by the way, a producer's the one that organizes the newscast or the program. Well, it really liked producing. I produced election coverage for nearly every year I was at WCIA. Uh, and being the behind the scenes coordinator of a program, a documentary, uh, storm coverage, election night, whatever it might be, there's a lot more journalistic control in that than there is in being the person who reads the story on the air. And I also liked going out on the scene, whether it was covering farming or a fire or a murder or whatever it might be, tornado, uh, and trying to make sense of all of the things that had happened at the tornado scene and then bringing back and putting it in some sort of a, okay, let's create a story out of this. And storytelling, especially video storytelling, became a passion of mine. I know it's been number one in the area forever, Channel 3. And I it was the first, if I recall, and even my grandparents, I remember them talking about some of the early broadcasters on Channel 3. And then for my entire life, it's been the local news station. There, there hasn't really been anything that's come close, whether it be uh, WICD or WAND. It seems like Channel 3 continues to stay at the top, and not just ratings-wise, production value, all that sort of stuff. And is there anything that you can pinpoint as to why that is, apart from the fact that it just got there first and probably has more practice at this sort of thing? Yeah, but you know, with today's cable and satellite, people don't know that if they move into a community like Champion, they have no idea that Channel 3 has been there forever. Part of it is there is a, at least during the years I was there, people stayed a long time. So you got used to the family of, I call them a family, but the team of anchors, the weather person, the sports person, when Dan Rohn was doing sports uh, or when, you know, other people, when Mr. Roberts was doing weather, you just got used to that and your trust went through the roof every night you did it. It's kind of like, I suppose, I don't do this, but weightlifting, you got to have a lot of reps. And if you're on air, the more reps you get, the more credibility, supposedly, you earn. I think that's the case anyway. So to me, Channel 3's success is due in large part of we're not only going to be good at what we do, but we're going to try to keep really good people in vital positions. And I know that was the case when I was there, especially under my mentor, Dave Shaw, who was a longtime news director. How has local TV news coverage changed and how has it stayed the same? For example, I believe you may have even come to John Fountain's Journalism 200 class. And you would speak to that class maybe once a semester, and you ca- you came in, and I said something that has stuck with me ever since. I think you were the one that mentioned weather gets about twelve minutes of a twenty-two minute broadcast, or uh, that yeah, might be an exaggeration, not, but it's not that much. But weather is by far the most watched component of any local newscast, whether it be in Champaign or Chicago, because weather affects everybody. Sports is the least watched, 
because it's one of those, yeah, I could live without it. There's something on later. So about a third of the regular audience pays attention to sports. And, and frankly, in some cases, people who are sports fanatics will watch anything. You know, you could put poker on. Yeah. And frankly, these days when there's not a lot of sports to cover, sports people are having to be very creative in, in their content. So, yeah, how has it changed? Um, you know, they're, they're now producing way more content during the day. I don't know how many hours a day Channel 3, for example, fills of local news content. It's got to be eight to ten hours a day. Yeah. We never did that much. We probably did six, you know, between morning and midday and six o'clock and ten o'clock, maybe, maybe six. And now it's easily ten. And you're doing it generally with fewer people. So if you do the dynamics of that, it means each person has to produce more content, uh, more stories. Yeah. And you've got this thing called a website. You got to fill stuff up with too. Sure. Uh, so that's created a lot of work in generally for a lot of young people who a company doesn't have to pay very much to who are eager to be involved in television or, or maybe radio too. You're more familiar with radio than me these days, but I'm sure radio has changed too. Has even Channel 3, I mean, you mentioned earlier how what they've done a good job of is keeping personalities for a while so you get to know them and you feel comfortable with them. Uh, And you mentioned the young people as well that often have to take these jobs just kind of like you did right after graduating. There was a gig for you, Channel 3. So I have noticed, and and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems as if it's an even more transient profession now. And maybe that's the market as to why that is. No, I don't think it's the market. I mean, there are about 214 television markets in the country. And of course, New York, LA, and Chicago are one, two, and three. Champagne's about 90th out of, so it's not a small market. It's kind of a medium market. Uh, It's a very good market for a college student to start in uh, because, and I'm going to use a line from Batman. I think it was from Batman when uh, Joker, the first Joker said, he's got all these cool toys. (laughs) Remember a line like yeah, that? Jack Nicholson well, said that line. Yeah, a good, TV, a good TV station has a lot of TV toys, whether it's live trucks or satellites or drones or whatever that is these days, that makes TV more compelling. A weather radar, a cool graphics package for weather, and it's much of it is kind of eye candy. So you've kind of got to adjust content versus graphics and eye candy, but. Uh, yeah, that's the other thing that's changed. The technology is certainly way more complex. You know, uh, when I started, I think I may have done one of the very first live shots for Channel 3 because we just got a live truck and we're trying not to get electrocuted uh, using it. <laughs> um, you know, things like that. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, the technology and the fact that many of the younger people are asked to conquer that technology as what's called uh, multimedia journalists, meaning they do everything from shoot, write, report, edit, and then present the story. Uh, so that's a big part of it. And when you talked about transients, generally in the broadcast business, a new employee uh, has to sign a two-year employment contract. So if you're right out of college, and let's say you're from Chicagoland, and you start in Quincy, Illinois, or you start in the Quad Cities that you don't know very well, after a couple of years there, you're ready to move to somewhere else for more money, a bigger challenge, and maybe to work your way back home. So two years is about the average. People don't stick around long 
because they're always looking to move up and move on and go to Portland or go to Albuquerque and work their way to LA or Denver or wherever is wherever they have a goal in mind. Then you get into teaching, and this is uh, I had the year here, but okay, so you sp- oh, it was roughly in the late '90s. Although I did a little part-time teaching in the '80s. Yeah, when they came to me to approach the university, came to me and said, "How'd you like to teach a beginning reporting class?" I first of all kind of looked behind me and said, are you talking to me or are you talking to somebody back there? Because <laughs> you'd and never secondly, taught before, right? I mean, this would be the no, first no, no, teaching. No. Yeah. No, uh, I didn't approach them. They approached me. Uh, and I also said, I don't think you looked at my transcript and I hope you don't <laughs> because I probably had more B's and C's than I did A's. That would be my problem and, as and well. And they were like, I don't care because you spend a lot of time at the radio station. You understand news. You know how to report. You know how to write. We think you'd be a good teacher. So with just one course, and I only had, I don't know, 15, maybe 20 students those early years, um, and it was kind of fun. And I found out I was better than I thought I would be at it uh, because I was bringing real-world, real-life newsroom stuff from WCIA into the classroom. And I know you've probably had teachers like that, too, that Mm -hmm. you go, oh, this guy's really done it or I can watch him on the news doing it. And I think that meant a lot to some of my early students. Yeah, there's instant credibility when you have that. And in your sure. case, the fact that you were still doing some TV at the beginning, right? I mean, so you were present and they could watch you at 10 o'clock if they wanted to. Um, I, I noticed that with the U of I College of Media as a whole, and this might be media colleges anywhere. Uh, to me, it seems like most journalists that I've ever met, news, TV, radio, whatever, are all pretty chill, for lack of a better word. And I don't know if that's necessarily your experience. I mean, when you get to the anchor desk, maybe you begin to see some patterns of, uh, I don't know, diva behavior. <laughs> I'm not oh, sure if yeah. you've ever, I, I'm not sure how much you've ever had to deal with that, but. No, I think, I think that's right. There is, um, you know, when you do get anointed to be an anchor, whether it's a morning or weekend or whatever it might be, yeah, you begin to believe uh, that you're a little bit bigger than you probably are. You know, your head gets bigger. Uh, you know, you all of a sudden have to take care of looks a little more um, than you might have. And of course, radio, that's why I was like, this is a face for radio. It's, why are it's you great. You don't have to get and, nice for any of it. Yeah, there are all these other non-journalistic things that all of a sudden come into consideration you know, wardrobe, makeup. Yes, guys, everybody wears makeup. On of course. TV, uh, which I had to learn too. Uh, you know, it's just one of those, yes, there there will be egos in that part. And for the most part, I think most people that work in television will go, yeah, that's just part of my job. You know, being on air, kind of like an actor. I think if you talk to many actors, they will tell you it's about the theater. It's about the acting. It's not about becoming a superstar. Well, maybe the money is, but yeah, well, sure. <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah, right. But I think most serious actors would tell you it's about acting, or musicians would tell you it's not about the money I make from all the records and albums. It's about the music. And I think most ju- true journalists would say that too. And by the way, one thing I want to bring up, uh, all journalists, when they're in school, as you know, uh, are taught about the uh, codes of ethics. And you, you learn basically that you need to subscribe to those codes of ethics. The first and most important of the four cornerstones of that is to seek the truth when you tell a story. 
you know, so don't go out there as many young journalists did, the last young journalism students did. They come in and they write their first story and it would have opinion in it. And I go, you can't, you can't put your opinion in your story. And they go, but I hear it on the news. It's on Fox and CNN and whatever. I'm like, yeah, but true journalists don't do that. Opinion journalists do, but day-to-day journalists don't do that. So it takes a little learning on their part to go, I can't put opinion in there. And that goes back to those foundations of the code of ethics that journalists do follow. And I want to get into an ethics discussion a bit. So you mentioned objectivity, or in, just in terms of reporting. And the thing that I struggle with, and I mean, full disclosure, what's going on right now in this country, which, you know, I mean, there's reasons it's getting compared to 1968. And I'm thinking, okay, in my mind, and I don't want to put you on any uncomfortable spot here, but in my mind, I look at Donald Trump and I would say objectively, this has not been a very good week for the presidency. I'd say objectively, right? But the thing is, if I were to include that in a story, then it would be labeled, and perhaps rightly so, as partisan. So is there a difference between objectivity and neutrality? I mean, is is that a line that gets blurred sometimes, where do you feel like journalists sometimes may take it to the degree that they they try so hard to appear neutral that they only will go so far uh, in terms of reporting? Yes. I, I mean, I do think I remember covering the first time I had to cover, it was either pro-life or pro-choice rally, you know, abor- abortion related in Champaign-Urbana. And I did my best to make sure whatever side it was, let's say it was a pro-choice rally, that I went and sought somebody from the other side to try to balance my story. Right. And I was accused by whatever side was holding the rally of you're not supposed to do that. You're just supposed to cover our side. And I think that's where that kind of thing is where some young journalists don't get the point that uh, they do need to try very hard in everything they cover to be extremely fair, to go out of their way to hide objectivity. I've often told now this isn't true in sports where they, I don't know if you're a Cubs fan or Cardinal fan or what you are. Yankees fan, Cubs sympathizer. No, you know, we're told to put that on the shelf when yeah. we talk about baseball. Even though we can be a little bit more opinionated in sports, I think you can. For fun. Then you can in journalism. I mean, I'm not supposed to show my colors, so to speak, when I talk about politics. Even the local reporters that were describing what was happening the other night during the protests and in some cases looting and marches around Champaign-Urbana, just the way you describe what's happening can be viewed with a certain color of I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat, I'm a liberal, I'm a conservative. So you really do have to just describe what you see and not go, oh, the, my God, they're doing bad things. And that's why I actually got to give credit to the local journalists so far over the past week when there's so many minefields that they're trying to navigate here. Like if they use a word here or a word there, then they might be labeled as such. Have you noticed that, you know, you mentioned your students and they might come in with their first story. It's got opinion in it. Uh, A theory that I have is that there was a long stretch there in the early part of the 2000s when cable news really came to the forefront. And the primetime lineup on a CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News would all have personalities that were commentators, which seemed to blur the line for a lot of people, uh, the way they would consume news, thinking that commentary was same as news reporting. Do you think that 
feeds in a little bit to some of the, you know, the stories you're getting from a student that might say, and I think this about this. There's a blurred line, no doubt. Uh, during the summer of 2005, I was lucky enough to do a faculty immersion at MSNBC because one of our grads was then the president of MSNBC, and he invited me out for basically a month to live in New York City and every day go to work at MSNBC and kind of see what the operation was like. And I did the same for a week with the Today Show and with NBC Nightly News. Uh, very insightful from a teaching standpoint, a faculty standpoint. But you find out that they don't cover very many stories. They, you know, there's 10 or 12 stories and they decide each day these are the ones that we're going to focus on. Uh, but they don't go much beyond that unless a big fire or an explosion or a hurricane pops up. So uh, that was my observation from that standpoint. But definitely what we see on most cable news nets from central time, basically seven o'clock until 10 o'clock is very opinion journalism. Whether you're watching Anderson Cooper or Rachel Maddow or Hannity or shows of that nature, they are opinion journalism. They're not traditional journalism. Now, during the day part, of, you know, from the morning news through three or four o'clock in the afternoon, those tend to be more straight news. You know, as we talk, uh, the funeral of George Floyd is going on in Houston. Uh, and coverage of that won't be as opinion filled as it will tonight as the hosts do their analysis. And do you find that a lot of journalism students that come through, uh, are more attracted to that opinion style. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Sure I mean, I mean, personally speaking, I remember... Oh, go ahead, go ahead. they're more political to begin with, you know, if they come in with uh, a political passion to begin with, yes, they want to advocate about whatever that position is. And maybe it's a one position. Maybe they're very strong Second Amendment person or they're very strong anti-abortion or they're very strong on whatever it might be. Uh, maybe they're anti NCAA. I don't know, but sure. they bring they'll bring that in and want to advocate for that. And you have to tell them, you may be an advocate for that on your own personal time, but you can't really do that. Is uh, it as, as a journalist? You know, know when to cross that line, and it takes a while for them to figure that out. Is there any anecdote you can remember from your teaching days? A hard conversation, whether it be a topic like you were just mentioned having to maybe kind of drive a student into or out of an avenue that they just were really dead set in pursuing, or even a conversation where, man, a semester goes by and it's just not clicking for that student. There, there, something's lost in translation. I mean, I've had students that just are deathly afraid of having to interview somebody. For sure. Just because they, they're afraid of other people, you know, they, let alone asking somebody for information that, they themselves don't know, you know, to interview the fire chief, let alone Lovey Smith or a, a governor, mm -hmm. you know, that would be very challenging for a young person. A man on the street interview is tough for them. But yeah, I'll give you one story. I had a, a female student, oh gosh, within the past 10 years, who was writing a story about a sexual assault on campus. And at the end of the story, she wrote one line and how this made it past the battery of other uh, editors and producers she wrote okay boys keep it in your pants 
which was highly inappropriate for the story, but somehow it made it all the way to air. And we immediately had to, you know, after the next break, commercial break, come back and say, hey, we're sorry, shouldn't have said that. In fact, we made the person who wrote the story go on the air and say, my fault, shouldn't have done that. Wow. So, yeah, that's probably among the, you know, there is a choice. Whenever a journalist goes out to cover a story, you know, I get to choose who I want to interview that I think will make the story most appropriate. And even some of those nuances of do I pick this politician or that politician or this expert or that scientist really in some ways can show bias. Uh, so that's something, to, uh, another uh, cautious step to make for any reporter. I'm going to ask you a question that you've probably gotten a million times. And it, it's the same sort of thing where people know me as the sports guy. So I could be at a family function or I could be out and they say, what do you think about this? And I'm like, oh, I talk about that so much. Do we really, can we really talk about something else? But yeah, what would you advise people that are unsure of how to best consume media or more to the point, be able to identify what qualifies as good journalism? I mean, what are some hallmarks that they could even spot fairly superficially when reading an article or watching broadcast news? You know, I think you've got to, like we do with uh, anything, you got to learn to rely on your gut a little bit, on instinct. When you read something and go, that sounds a little bit outrageous, too good to be true. And the internet makes this so darn easy today to just go, I don't know you know, if that's true about whatever's being reported. And you can look it up on Google and find out if other people are reporting something similar or whether nobody's reporting that. And then that makes you a little bit more suspicious. So I think that's one thing I would advise. But the biggest thing I've always said is have a good news diet that allows you to have a little bit of meat, potatoes, dessert, vegetables, do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. You Diversify. Know, don't, don't get all your news from one place because then you're only consuming one variety or, or one brand of news. So, yeah, get a varied diet of where you're getting your information from. Uh, and I have to admit, for many people, that's very hard to cross over and begin watching something that's very conservative or something that's very liberal, or that they believe to be one or the other. So that that's hard. But that's something to push yourself to do to go, you know, I may not like what I hear on the Rush Limbaugh show, but I'm going to listen, because I think it's good that I inform myself to find out what that side of the issue thinks about it. And by the same token, I'm going to listen to what you know, some people would label as crazy Rachel Maddow's thinking about the president. So yeah, get yourself a little variety there and swallow the hard pill to, to, to listen to the other side so that you can try to understand their reasoning and logic. Yeah, an example of that is I distinctly remember being in a class and it was news editing and it was five minutes before class started and all I was just doing a quick little web surf of you know the headlines of the day and there were basically two websites at the time and each of them, one left, one right. There was Huffington Post on the left as a news aggregate, Drudge Report on the right and a fellow student caught me on Drudge Report for a couple minutes and he's like, oh really? I was like, oh, come on, it's, it's a news aggregate. I was yeah. just on Huffington Post so we're all good, right? Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that's the tricky thing, though, is that you mentioned the steady, the, the nice diet, the meat, the potatoes, the dessert, and kind of diversifying the way that people absorb news. When it seems like, uh, back to this idea of polarization, and Twitter is certainly a cesspool of this, where it feels, unfortunately, like we are maybe in a post-truth existence, or a burgeoning uh, kind of post-truth existence. What I mean by that is fake news and however crazy some of us may think that term is or is not, it has resonated with people that were fed up enough with their media habits to begin with. And uh, I could go to Google, I could find that article, or I could find that study and say, see, but they might come back and say, well, you know, Columbia University professors, I mean, they're just a bunch of this or that's right. Yeah, right, right. So, uh, is there a limit, uh, certainly to diversify the way that we watch news, or if we get into a discussion with somebody, we could point out a fact. Uh, but if that is then dismissed, is there any recourse? And, and what could a journalist specifically do to say, no, no, this is the fact. I promise. I got this, you know, this, and that. It's it's very hard. One of the things you, you teach young journalism students is how to build credibility. And you build credibility through a number of ways but one is by every story every interview you do every day for every assignment is seek the truth try, tell the truth try to put your best face forward out there and by doing a lot of repetitions of that in theory your credibility moves up and you become uh, more knowledgeable you become more believed in by by viewers by listeners um so I think that's a part of it uh, is just being there and, you know, I'm going to tell the truth today. But all it takes is one mistake for you to not fall back just a step or two, but you can fall back a lot, whether that's Dan Rather or whether that's Brian Williams, who yeah. fell back a lot at one point because of some mistakes. You, you just can't afford to have that happen as a journalist, because uh, your credibility is more important than anything else you have as a reporter, as an anchor, as a writer. Uh, that's it. Uh, so, yeah, just tell the truth, uh, write the truth, seek the truth, whether it's about a car accident or whether it's about a fire or whether it's about politics. And I, I just find that today's in fact, I was saying this the other day to my wife. Facebook and Twitter are so angry anymore. The world is so angry around us, not only because of the recent protests and police situation, but, you know, the conspiracies that swirl around out there and just everybody distrusts each other, even though we're basically good friends with people on Facebook. And at one point, I just about said, I've had enough. I'm getting off Facebook for a month. Because it's just, it seems like everybody's yelling at each other. Did you? You were off for a month? Did you get off Facebook for a month? I, I got off for about three days. It's too hard to <laughs> Too addictive, I guess. It is. It is. And, and for me, Twitter's the same thing, where it is, at the end of the day, a news source. Kind of like, you know, it's a, what yeah. Drudge Report and Huffington Post were 10 years ago. Twitter is sort of that news aggregate where you can get it instantly. And, and uh, I think, Mike, if you, see, if you view Twitter, I don't care whether you're a journalist or not, but if you view Twitter as there's going to be a lot of people yelling at each other and they're going to be yelling, I hate Democrats, I hate Republicans. If you can just put that aside and go, that's going to be out there and look in between all of those comments. Um, 
I think that's where you'll actually try to find some news that may be relevant in your life. And that's our goal is to actually tell stories that are relevant in somebody's life. And it seems to me that the role that a really good journalist would play in the midst of this noise is that sort of calming voice you know, with the storm going around them, they are the ones staying calm, cool, and collected. And I think about journalists in particular, uh, Maggie Haberman from the New York Times, who will get people yelling at her from both sides. And for me, that that passes the smell test. I'm thinking, well, she's doing something right here. Um, what journalist, whether it be TV or print or radio, are, are some of the gold standards today that they could have existed in the world of media in the 70s or the 90s? And they, the way that they write, the way that they report would hold up. You know, I think there's a, a lot of those out there today, uh, both on local level and national. And it, I think it depends on the topic. You know, I think you and I could say, since we're both sports fans, there are, there are some people I really enjoy reading, whether it's a book written by an author about sports or whether it's I'm currently reading a book um, by an ABC correspondent who covers the White House about the Trump presidency. And I frankly didn't know the guy much. His name is Jonathan Carl, K-A-R-L. And I think it's called uh, Front Row at the Trump Show. But it's kind of his perspective on this presidency from a reporter standpoint. I've grown to admire him more just by reading his book uh, as a reporter, not necessarily as a critic of Trump. Um, I think there are quite a few of those. Maggie Haberman's one of them who's out there fighting the good fight on behalf of journalists and the truth. Uh, I subscribe to the Washington Post online, uh, partly because I visited there. I know several U of I graduates that work there, some of them very, very important people. Uh, and I know a lot of people pick on the Post because of Jeff Bezos, Bezos and you sure. know they pick on the New York Times, and I still admire the big old gray lady, too. And I think a lot of that becomes is because I know our graduates that work there and I believe in them. Therefore, I believe in the institutions they work for. I also know graduates that work at Fox and I also know graduates that work at, you know, Buzzfeed and a lot of other Vox and Vice. I still believe in them because they're out there covering their niche of whatever it might be of the world. uh, Because I know they have the right foundations that I think the school of journalism at the U of I taught them. What's your biggest concern in 2020, other other than, you know, pandemic and election area, other than all these things? And, other and than protest- murder hornets and cicadas <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, frankly, I, I, this year is going to be one that I think our children uh, and grandchildren will study forever. It's yeah. just one of those years that from the impeachment hearings through the coronavirus, through, you know, all of this, it's just been one issue after another, and each one seems gigantic. I mean, I, I, I love space. I thought the space shot was cool as can be, mm-hmm. because we just haven't done it for a while. So when you see something a little bit out of the ordinary, not as controversial, and that space thing wasn't that controversial, I just thought it was cool. Um, you know, the same way I'm hoping there will be a baseball season i that's that's tenuous right now imagine what's going to happen you know with the election i just there's no way to know having not um you know having been surprised in 2016 by the election results I, i just don't know what to think about this year for journalism 
and I mentioned the fake news tag that gets thrown around and and really just how splintered news coverage has become, for better or worse. I mean, so you have all these different outlets, which that can be a good thing, but uh, I don't know if that's possibly feeding into even more mistrust for media because so many of them, especially newer companies, are founded on some sort of political lean one way or the other. But is there... Are you more concerned for journalism in 2020 than ever before, or is it one of those fields that we come to this discussion every 10 years or so, oh, I'm worried about the First Amendment, I'm worried about journalism, and it tends to find its way out? Mike, I think journalism has been in an evolution for a lot of reasons since really probably the 1980s when uh, deregulation happened for the broadcast side, but things started to change. Technology changed. It evolved. Satellite technology came around. You know, the fax machine changed our business. Cell phones changed our business. Computers changed our business. Um, All of that we take for granted now. Uh, I guess I am most concerned at this point at the survival of local newspapers. Uh, I see so many even community newspapers that would come out once a week that are going away. Uh, I worry about the survival of even the News Gazette. Uh, I, you know, advertising right now is really bad because the economy's bad. Uh, I know you and I know that in the broadcast industry, there have been layoffs within broadcast companies. And that's scary uh, that, you know, fewer journalists mean there are fewer stories, people, fewer people telling stories in our communities, uh, not only nationally, but communities. Uh, and, you know, I hate to get to the point where we think, you know, what's that line about lawyers? Uh, best lawyers, the one at the bottom of the ocean or something like that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's it. You know, I, I, I hate to think that that's the way people will think about journalism. Although I have heard in talking to parents of journalism students that mom or dad will go, why are you even in this business? It's a dying business. I, I don't think it is. I don't think so either, because there's certain things even 10 years ago, if you would have said, hey, someday you'll host a podcast, I'd say, well, huh? What's, oh, yeah. what's that? And uh, that that's where I do stay overall encouraged about the future of something like this, because it's sort of like uh, you mentioned newspapers as one example, and it's really concerning right now. And I hope especially the News Gazette can find their way. Unfortunately, we'll probably see um, even more decreases in how often they print and things like that. But um, it's tenuous, certainly. But I wonder if newspapers can't become sort of like the vinyl record of journalism, where they're they're the physical copy that they'll make a comeback or they'll find their niche. And meanwhile, the the general shift will be uh, primarily to online electronic sources, which it already kind of is. No doubt. I mean, the other is the changing demographics of America. My generation, those of us in our 60s, as we die off, those of us who like to hold a physical newspaper in our hand are going to become fewer and fewer compared to my kids' generation that don't know what it's like to get up and hold a paper every day. Um, you know, I miss having a Monday newspaper in Champaign. I miss that the Daily Illini is only printed two days a week and at least right now isn't printed at all. Uh, you know, is that the evolution we're coming to? Maybe it is. Because older people who are not as internet and not as tablet savvy are going to die off. Uh, And what's that mean for radio? Because, you know, at one point they said when TV comes along, radio is going to die. Well, it hasn't. 
I, so I don't know. I've will thought about that. Will the internet kill the? Will the internet kill the newspaper? Might the printed newspaper? I think you're seeing more now media organizations thinking of themselves as we are a content creator rather than just a newspaper in the physical sense. Yeah, absolutely. And when it comes to, I think radio, it's going to be what it's going to be. It's already owned by a few different conglomerations. And locally, we do have three radio groups. But, you know, on the other side of this pandemic, and you mentioned the economics of it, having had to do sales, I cannot envision if I were still doing the full-time thing there, going into even clients I've had forever and asking them to either keep with the agreement we had or, hey, you know, let's try to add this sales thing here or there. I, in a way, ethically, I'd almost feel icky about that, just given the, the facts of this economy. So it does seem with talk radio, you're going to find that continual push towards podcasting, um, which finds ways to monetize itself anyway. Music radio, is, it's probably just going to find its way to where everything is just pre-programmed out of New York, out of L.A., and then they just push it through well, local. Well, look at how look at how Spotify has changed the way we listen to music. I mean, I listen to my phone, so to speak, the music on my phone more in the car than I do local radio. Same here. Yep. And that's a that's a shame for local radio stations. But I can pick my music as opposed to whatever music a DJ or a station music program director thinks I ought to be listening to. What a year, huh? Uh, are you overall, and we had talked about you know the things that we're encouraged about or maybe discouraged about with media, but how has the, me- the media, I'm using that monolithic term again, yeah. how have specifically mainstream news media in the form of the major TV networks and the major newspapers, let's go with New York Times, Washington Post, the Trib, even though ugh, they're, that whole thing uh, with their employees and all the furloughs, the Wall Street Journal, with so many complexities going on, are you finding more solid reporting than ever? Because I, I am encouraged overall by some of the reporting that I'm reading on a daily basis and the depth of reporting. Yeah, I do think you know having more reporters out there from all news outlets um, is a good thing because that means there are more stories that they're trying to cover and more layers of people trying to cover the same story whether it was the impeachment uh, situation or whether it's the pandemic, the more reporters you have out there, the better. The fewer reporters that are out there because of the dynamics of the economy is a bad thing. So I think from that standpoint, I'm not optimistic about the next year or two uh, for some parts of journalism, like I said, especially for newspapers. Um, Television seems to be holding its own at the moment, although that's at the moment. Not sure what you know, going into fall will mean. And, you know, the fourth quarter in most economies is a good quarter. I just don't know how well the economy will recover by then. But yeah, generally, uh, I'd say journalists should walk very delicately between now and election day, Uh, both in what they do, what they say, what they write, uh, because everybody is critical. Everybody's a critic anymore when it comes to what you write and what you present. I will say, from what I understand of the New York Times and the Washington Post, they're not failing media enterprises. Not at all, no. money, And mainly because of their online presence, not because of the print edition. Um, I can't tell you about the networks. Um, I know that in some cases they're not doing as well. 
And I don't know whether it works against, you know, when there's a protest against, let's say, Hannity, and you go protest against all of his advertisers. Does that really hurt them or not? I, I don't know. I don't have a way to gauge that. Yeah, tough to say because you always will read stories about an advertiser left Hannity or an advertiser left, I mean, back in the day, Bill O'Reilly, but yeah, they kept trucking on. Yeah. So, and, and Mike, let me ask you, what, what do you think the future of sports journalism is, given that we haven't had games for how many months? Now? <laughs> well, I just had, there was a new review, I'll get these notifications on our Apple feed, and a review came in and said... You know, I like the podcast when you're talking sports, but when you aren't, and as I explained on the last one, hey, you know, I, I can only speculate on things that don't exist, and I don't know when they're going to come back for so long, and it just seems like uh, it would be ignoring the major elephant in the room if we didn't talk about the things that were going on, and one of those things that's not going on, sports. So it, it's I think the future of it is probably... Unfortunately, maybe more the direction that we see with the sports, uh, the sports illustrated of the world, which got sold, let go a lot of great reporters and no offense to the young kids that they're hiring, but there's already been a few almost comical, except it's kind of tragic, uh, tweets and things that they put out that make me think, wait a second, you aren't supposed to be Buzzfeed sports. You're sports illustrated. You're the beacon of sports journalism. So, um, but, but they're young enough. Maybe they don't know that. That's and the problem. I know, I've known somebody that moved from sports illustrated. One of our graduates moved from sports illustrated to the athletic. Am I getting that right? Yeah. And is the athletic admired? Yeah. It's doing a, it is a pay model and people have a subscription to it and they're bringing great journalists in there and they have a bunch of different offices in different cities. So they are very quickly, I think they had a big bankroll to start with and they said, we're investing in it and it looks like that'll stick for the time being. You, you also have, more, I think you're going to see less sports reporting and more and more sports commentary. And an example of that would be how Bill Simmons has essentially built an empire uh, hosting these three-hour podcasts where he just is talking. He has an immense knowledge for sure, but he just talks and hangs out. And uh, I like listening to it. I know what it is. I know it's not necessarily sports reporting. So I think sports reporting may be in danger, but there's going to be such an appetite for sports commentary, especially when they come back, that you will see. I mean, I know for a fact when Io DeSumo hit the game-winning shot at Michigan this year, by far and away the most listened-to podcast we've had. And if you look at a couple of the ones when sports have gone away, come on, it's like half. If that, so. I got to wonder, too, was this the wrong year for the Cubs to start Marquee Network? <laughs> Not a good choice, right? I mean, it's amazing, too, how if you look at baseball and what happened in 1994 and how long it took them to come back, I'm, I'm, a, I'm very afraid that we are hurtling towards no agreement, no season. And uh, I, I, I tend to sympathize with the players because of the concessions they'd have to make in their daily lives, even. But uh, regardless, it's going to keep people away from that sport for a while. And this was going to be a fun year. The Astros were going to get booed mercilessly everywhere they went. The NL Central was wide open. I felt like the Yankees, they're going to win 28 this year. So I'm, I'm hoping that that gets resolved because as excited as I am, the NBA is coming back. That's official. Won't there be like uh, the Roger Maris year? Won't there always be an asterisk next to 2020's baseball oh, sure. season? Yeah. If we only have 80 games or we only have 100 games. I mean, there's always going to be, the, yeah, the Yankees won, but. 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, did baseball, and I forget because I know Ted Williams went off to the war, but baseball continued through World War II, I'm pretty sure. I don't think there's ever been any major uh, yeah, stoppages. It did, it did mostly. I mean, you know, the women's league. Uh, oh, that's right. Uh, okay. The, you know, the women stepped up at some point when there weren't quite as many men. But, yeah, baseball tried to go along. But, um, you know, I, I do think the NCAA football season is dependent on what the NFL decides to do. If the NFL goes forward, I hope the NCAA goes forward. I like the tailgating as much as I do. The <laughs> I like the tailgating more than the football game often. But, you know, the, uh, it does seem as if um, and we had a discussion with Harry Black, one of our co-hosts, was a student athlete. And he's a little bit frustrated at the transparent nature of, all right, we aren't going to bring back any other students except football, men's basketball, you come on back, which I understand got delayed until uh, June 8th, maybe out of safety concerns. I'm not really sure, but um, I- I'm with you on that. And it does seem like it's full steam ahead. And there will be people that test positive, And that will be something that schools will have to deal with one by one. But um, if you were still teaching at the U of I this fall, would you have any concerns about, all right, everybody comes back, Classes under 50, I believe they want to try to hold if they can in the classroom. Yeah, I never had a class that big. My classes were always 20 or so. 15, 25. Yeah. I did co-teach a freshman sports journalism class that got as high as, I think, 25 at one point. Uh, but, um, yes, I would have concerns. And I think you're going to find some instructors that will do part of their class in person, part of their class online, given the experience of this past spring. Um you know, I just I. It seems like every solution to an, uh, a question that comes up at the university about instruction or the dorms brings two more problems with it. Right. You know, you go well. We'll just put one person in each dorm room. Well, that means you won't have enough dorm rooms for all of the people <laughs> that want to live in dorms. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I, it, every every solution, even classrooms. How do you, you know, if, if classrooms only designed for 30 people and you've got 23 in there how do you be socially distant do you have more sections i i don't know i don't know how the university is addressing that it makes my brain hurt to uh, yeah i mean even just thinking about a sixth grade class with 25 or even if they go half they're talking a b schedule but you know well do we ask them to wear a mask would they keep their mask on would they be able to maintain social distance in the classroom or the hallway where would they eat lunch and i do not envy admin right now and, and the decisions they have to make. I, I do, uh, going back to sports for a second, I mean, I do see the hunger for sports is there so much that, uh, help me here, we're, we're all of a sudden watching pro wrestling as if it's a real sport. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and we're watching, uh, what was it they did for the Kentucky Derby where they've got all the winners and uh, put them in a fake race together. I didn't see that, but I have seen, and it might have only been one night, but ESPN was airing what they called the Ocho, and that's where they have all these very obscure yeah, right, sports. Right. Like uh, it, it was like headbutting ping pong. So it was a yeah. ping pong table and kind of like a little volleyball, and they could only butt it with their heads. And you know, it was it was kind of fun, and it was a novelty. And I'm thinking, oh my god, just give yeah. me games. And uh, I, I see the the NBA says July 31st. Not even a big NBA fan, but I'm I'm going to be chomping at the bit by then, and it's going to be all day. They're going to be playing from morning until night in one location, so all day yeah, long the, on TV, you flip it on. But do you think games will be successful if they don't have fans? I think that we will be weirded out the first few times we watch it, but like anything else in this pandemic, 
it'll become normal for now. And it, it, I think baseball, to a larger extent, I would be less thrown off by watching baseball games. But if you talk about football, that's kind of weird to hear every single sound of these guys just you know running into each other. I mean, that's cool on one hand, but also a little bit jarring because you will lose some of that excitement when you know during a game there's that momentum that builds up. Well, where are you going to get that momentum from? You're going to have to kind of conjure it up yourself watching it from your couch or whoever you're watching it with. Yeah, I just, I, and even if you have, you know, Memorial Stadium with only whatever, 10 to 15,000 people instead of, uh, instead of 40,000 or 50,000, it's going to be very different. Uh, it depends on the game, though. I've seen some empty Memorial Stadiums in my day. But <laughs> oh, yeah, me too. We, we have, uh, we've often made the joke, I'm not alone in this, but just that, you know, my dad and I, we, we have season tickets and we'll go in. And there's a spot that we'll just kind of stand in the main west. So we got the nice concourse and all that. And we just stand up by that brick wall that lines up against the colonnades. And, hey, social distancing has never been a problem for us there. We find a little niche and it's like, if we wanted to, I guess we'd be okay. Yeah. Well, I hope uh, sports-wise things come back. I hope journalism, I hope somebody proves me wrong and newspapers get stronger and stronger. I'm not sure they will, but I can always hope. Yeah, I'm not sure either. But um, in the meantime, it is it's amazing that with this discussion of media and journalism that we are more reliant than ever on it. And it is still encouraging. I mean, you know, with equal parts discouraging and encouraging, depending on which media topic we really get into. But at the end of the day, I mean, who do I trust to get my information from? For me, it is maybe having gone through the U of I in the College of Media, but it is still kind of the old beacons of journalism, whether that be the New York Times and the Washington Post, or even in the case of uh, I'm finding myself really enjoying the way that David Muir on ABC, the way that he delivers news, and I'm, I'm, I just like the way that that newscast is constructed. So, yeah, um, I think probably my uh, the only hero I really had, to, I really liked uh, Bob Schieffer, who did yeah. CBS uh, and was in Dallas the day Kennedy was shot. I actually gave uh, uh, the wife of uh, the shooter a ride over to Dallas from Fort Worth. Anyway, wow. I, I, I've always held him very highly and still do. He's still around. Uh, but yeah, meeting some of the icons of the broadcast industry, I met Ted Turner at one point. Whoa, okay. Uh, you know, only for a few minutes. And he talks a lot. Um, but that that's pretty impressive to meet people like that. You mentioned Bob Schieffer and Ted Turner. Any other names? I mean, whether it be old 60 Minutes guys or, I mean. You know, as a kid, I met this guy called uh, 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 Jack Buck. I didn't know who he was. (laughs) It's Uh, not bad. I went to see my first Cardinal game in the old Sportsman's Park and learned about some guy named Usual. I didn't know who that was. Whoa. Uh, So, yeah, I mean. Uh, when I was in New York doing that uh, faculty immersion, I sat at Brian Williams' desk. Um, you know, you you rub shoulder. It helped me here. Keith Olbermann. Yeah, I met him when he he was working at. And did he work for ESPN? He was the ESPN I, anchor with Dan Patrick for a while. They were the ones hosting Sports Center in the early nineties. Yeah, at that point, uh, Keith was hosting an MSNBC political show. He's yeah. still very political, mm-hmm. but uh, you know, they let me shadow that show for a week. So I kind of got to know him a little bit. I'm sure he doesn't remember me. Um, but yeah, you kind of get to work with some of those people. And uh, I got to go to lunch because I was in NBC with Lester Holt and Amy wow. Robach and you know several of the anchors just to 
BS with them over lunch about the state of the media at that time, state of the press. And uh, Lester Holt was great. Of course, he was, I was buying his lunch. But <laughs> Well, if you uh, and last question I'd have for you would be, you know, you talk about hanging out with some of these people that. I mean, legit famous people, and we see them on TV, and then you meet them, and you find out, you know, very quickly they become humanized, and it's not that big of a deal. So from your days that you were on Channel 3, how often would it be? Because it's a small enough community. You know, I remember growing up, Judy Fraser was like an A-list celebrity. So would you ever be out and about, and people would be like, oh, are are you? Wow. Oh, yeah. In fact, when in the early 80s, when my wife and I got married, uh, we honeymooned in San Francisco, and my wife had gotten used to the fact that people around Champaign-Urbana would see you, whether it was a grocery store or hardware store or whatever, and go, hey, I know you from somewhere. Um, but we're in San Francisco on Fisherman's Wharf, and she goes, nobody's going to know you out here. And I go, that's okay. I don't care. You know, I'm concentrating on other stuff. And uh, sure enough, some guy from Decatur walks up to Fisherman's Wharf and goes, aren't you on Channel 3? That's you pretty know, cool. She about she about fell over. I, I can almost ma- match that. And not being on TV, it's a little more difficult. But I was in Indianapolis, and a friend and I were in a mire. And we're getting our tailgate supplies for the second night of Dave Matthews Band over there. So we're getting all the, yeah, yeah. All the goodies. And I'm just asking my friend a question. And someone five feet away, they, they kind of come up, they tap me on the shoulder. They're like, are you Carp? And I said, <laughs> yeah. He's like, I could tell by the voice. He knew yeah. from the voice from listening to 93.5. So, uh, it was yeah, like, I still get it occasionally. I pulled into, a, of all places, a Dairy Queen. And uh, the lady at the window with her mask on goes, hey, you're on TV. And I go, uh, not for 20 years. I haven't <laughs> but I guess it's she remembers still there, though. So yeah, I don't know. My Very... kids used to make fun of it. I'd come home with TV makeup on and go, let's go out to dinner. And they'd go. Not to you wash your face. Yeah, yeah. I think Lon Lon Tate could probably relate to that. And another yeah, thing yeah. he could he could relate talk to. Talk about guy who's got a great voice. Oh man, golden voice. And another thing that he could relate to with you is you said he wanted to be the second baseman of the Cardinals, right? Yeah. And yeah. his idol is Tommy Her, second Tommy baseman Herr, from the eighties. Really? That's he's. He, I think believe he has a powder he blue Tommy Her jersey. For me, it was uh, you know it'd be second base because I thought I was good at second base when I was in little league, but. Uh, you know, I always admired Lou Brock. And then when I had a student, uh, Taylor Rooks, yeah, and she graduated and she goes, hey, JP, why don't you please come to my graduation? I want you to meet my family. And of course, I knew her father had played football for the Illini. The Rose Bowl team. Yeah. Watching Thomas Rooks play. And she goes, I want you to meet my Uncle Lou. And I'm like, Uncle Lou, okay. And then she told me who Uncle Lou was. And I'm like, I'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that that's pretty cool. And I, I'd heard that somewhere, and I don't know if it was a tweet from her or not, and talk about someone, a U of I grad, that has just found her niche and blown yeah. up. I mean, it's yeah. pretty incredible within the last I, – I think at one point she was considering being a, an intern on Tay and Jay in like 2013, 14. Yeah. And then here she, she showed, is in New York, I believe. She showed me her very first uh, resume reel and – the first person she interviewed was some guy named LeBron, <laughs> uh, you know, and she's, she's like a high school kid. Yeah. So yeah, she has a lot of talent is the only graduate I've ever known to come out of our program and go directly to major market network, you know, big 10 network right from school. Yeah. Most people have to go somewhere else before they ever get there. Uh, she's got a lot of talent. She has the, 
look, demeanor, character, all of that stuff to carry her very far. And I think I just read, I think on Twitter the other day that she don recently donated ten thousand dollars to something about the Black Lives Matter thing. Now she's been that's active. A bigger, that's a little bit bigger than my checkbook. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think she's probably doing okay with that. But I, I did see that as well. And uh, you know, that's the one thing is that. Um, you know, the University of Illinois College of Media, I, I mean, we used to have running jokes as students there about, you know, all the classes in the basement of Greg Hall, which they've kind of done up the basement a little bit. I mean, there's less exposed pipes and things like that. Uh, but at the end of the day, the one consistent was always the faculty was terrific. Um, the diversity of curriculum offerings. And I mean, even though the location may have been, you know, some of them in the basement, it was still yeah, a fantastic well, that's, experience. That's being renovated a little bit, so I hear I haven't been back, but uh, it's being some of those places in the basement are being renovated. But I, I'm constantly impressed by the alumni of our program, uh, and they are literally all over the world. Um, you know, working in journalism, working in public relations, working public information officers, communications officers. Uh, one of the former interns at Channel Three, who I uh, mentored and oversaw is uh now on fox news uh, dana perino she wow. went to uis got her master's master's at uis and i was the guy that had to go over and go hey here's what you could improve on well she's gone a little farther in her career <laughs> than i have <laughs> that's gotta be that's gotta be pretty cool though i mean just the people well, that you've, and yeah. you know what i vividly remember going over to springfield and meeting with her i think over coffee to talk about how she could improve and she was the what 24 year old at that point mm -hmm. so but you can you know you can see the light go on up here you can see stars in a lot of these young people and it's so impressive to see our graduates whether they work at big icons of media around the country one of my favorite students is now the I'm going to get the newspaper term wrong, executive editor, maybe, at the uh, San Francisco Chronicle. Jeez. And he was a broadcast kid. So to have him land there is pretty cool. Excellent. John, I appreciate your time. Um, I, I, I was glad to have a conversation about, again, something that we are consuming more than ever just by virtue of being home and by virtue of this being the craziest year, at least in my life. I don't know about you, but I, I'd be hard-pressed uh, to find yeah. another one. You know, my kid, uh, I have two kids, both in their 30s, and one of them asked me the other day, Dad, in your long life, which made me sound really old, <laughs> uh, has anything like this happened? And I'm like, you know, it was weird for a couple of days after 9-11. I remember 1968 being kind of weird and funky because of the war and MLK and RFK and, you know, but no, this is the weirdest era I have ever ever been through yep and I, I can't imagine what it would have been like for our parents and grandparents with the war and the depression and things like that sure and which was over and, and the thing about that was over kind of you know i mean the depression in 1929 and then you have world war ii ending in 1945 so those are 16 years of the lot going on but man 2020 just packed a lot a lot well, and you got, in the middle of all that 1929 stuff there was this thing called prohibition oh yes so you couldn't even go get you couldn't even go get it well you could go get a drink but not legally and which by comparison one of the first essential services that they reopened or made sure to stay open in 2020 during the pandemic liquor stores you need them yeah liquor stores not the bars but the liquor stores <laughs> yeah. john uh, i appreciate it and uh, let's do this again sometime
All right. Talk to you. Good luck. All right. Appreciate it. That's John Paul, longtime professor at the University of Illinois and, of course, a longtime personality on WCIA3. Great conversation with him and much appreciated. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you have a great weekend coming up. A reminder that the 200 level is brought to you by DPDO online at dpdo.com for all the best deals and prices. They deliver anywhere in Champaign-Urbana, dpdo.com. Fourth and Kirby, online at fourthandkirby.com, coupon code 200LEVEL or the 200LEVEL for 10% off your order. Uh Uh-oh, my voice is cracking. I better wrap this up. And also, brianismyguy.com. That's for State Farm agent Brian Hansen. brianismyguy.com for all your life, auto, home, business, renters, insurance needs, you name it. They got you covered, brianismyguy.com. Again, have a great weekend, everybody. We will see you on Monday. It is the 200 level.